Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. I'm Star business columnist at the New York Times, best-selling author and co-producer of the HBO adaptation of that hit book, co-anchor of CNBC's Squawk Box, and co-creator for the Showtime series Billions, father of twins. He's also appeared on Breaking Bad. How, pray tell, does one invent the kraken of a job description that is Andrew Ross Sorkin? Stay with us. Full disclosure is made possible by the support of our friends at Elwood Thompson's, the best market in Virginia, hands down. Small, independent, local, organic market at the top of Carytown in the RVA, but really they are so much more than that. Indian Wednesdays, you can see them at the new, brand spanking new ICA. There's Blanchard's Coffee. I can't say enough great things about them. Visit them at the top of Carytown at Elwood and Thompson Streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. I am here in the NPR New York City mothership on 42nd Street, just a quarter mile east of where you work near the Port Atrocity, Andrew Ross Sorkin. How are you? Did you just call it the Port Atrocity? I always called it the Port Atrocity. It was the armpit of the Northeast for the longest time. Should I say booyah right about now? I don't know. Do you remember when you wrote a, a cover story for Business Week? With Jim Cramer on the cover. Antediluvian times. You know what I remember more, and I have to get the full disclosure out of the way. Your wonderful wife, Pilar Queen, is my literary agent. True. Uh, but I met you prior to that. I was actually, I had, uh, I worked for the New York Times during business school, and they descended me into, I believe it was the Tycho sentencing. Yes. And I had to meet this guy, this, this, this feat of nature called Andrew Ross Sorkin. And you just briefed me, I think you were charming one of the defendant's daughters and getting a great story out of it. And it's like, look, kid, you're going to follow these jurors. I know this one gets off at this subway at the one nine stop, this one, the other place. There's a, I, I knocked on somebody's door in a housing project up in Morningside Heights. And I was like, what the heck did I sign up for? You remember when we ran around after, after one of the verdicts? Was that the first trial or the second trial? I, I think I, it was the second trial. Second trial. We showed up. They took yeah. our they took our ancient phones. We didn't have smartphones going yeah. on, but you had had this all planned out, and I was like, I don't know if I want to work for the New York Times, man. <laughs> we had fun. That was a great summer. That was a great summer. And then I remember, by the way, you went off to Business Week. I did. Do you remember after that? I did. And I was depressed that we didn't we hadn't figured out a way to to steal you away before you did. And then you wrote that big cover story, it's Booyah, okay. about Jim Cramer. It's okay. I mean, I've, I've admired you from afar for the that longest was, that time. Was a, and... That was a very fun summer. Well, you've you've built quite a name for yourself. And I told you, you know, you you can you're booked on all manner of shows. You've been on. Gosh, I. On top of, of 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 CNBC, I mean, everybody has you on. Your column is there. You co-founded DealBook, I remember, back in the day. But I want to take you back yeah. to um, your Scarsdale High School days. Because I don't know, when I was at the New York Times that summer, is the story apocryphal that you just called Stuart Elliott, the advertising columnist, and said, look, I'm in high school. I'm in Westchester. I'll do anything you want. I'll cover any beat. Just let my foot in the door. It's pretty much right. It was a little more complicated than that. I had, um, when I was 15 years old, I always wanted to be in media, always. And, but not necessarily as a journalist. I thought maybe I'd be on the business side of media or be an entrepreneur and try to start something. And when I was 15, I started a sports magazine in Scarsdale that I tried desperately to turn into a national magazine, a sports magazine. And um, 
we had a little bit of success, success enough, by the way, where the New York Times ended up writing about us, maybe when I was 16, I think. Uh-huh. And then we failed quite miserably by the time I was about 17, but one of the greatest educations of my life. But I used to read Stuart Elliott religiously. Most people, you know, most kids then, if they read the New York Times at all, read the front page, made the rent to the sports section. I, I didn't even go near that stuff. I just went straight to Stuart. Stuart was my god. And I always, oh, Andrew, I love to hear that. I all I wanted to do was work for this guy. And so <laughs> when I was a senior in high school, we give a, me a date. Was that ninety three? Ninety five. We're we're talking we're talking ninety five. But I think yeah. I got in touch with him in ninety four, um, fall of ninety four, because I had I had to figure it out for the for the spring of ninety five. Effectively, that I wanted to somehow uh, go go somehow work for this guy. And we had a little program at the times right at, at in high school where if you could go get an internship or do some kind of independent project, you could go do an independent project. And so I was working every angle I possibly could to somehow get my foot in the door and through basically just doing all sorts of craziness, uh, I got a chance to have lunch with him and he took me on a tour of the building. And I remember at the time he was like, look, kid, I don't know if we can, we don't really have internships for kids like you. Um, you're, you're too young. It's not, I don't think it's going to work. And I basically just begged and pleaded and said, let me come for five weeks for free. I'll Xerox, I'll staple, I'll do whatever you want. And that's, and by the way, there's, it's a union shop. Right. So I know. we didn't, it was a little complicated to be there. I used to actually show up in the morning and get a visitor pass. <laughs> and then I didn't have a desk. I'd basically stand. Mm-hmm. That was, and by the way, possibly the best job I ever had in my entire life, and I used to Xerox and staple for him. That was the point. I wasn't ever planning on putting two words together, let alone a sentence. And then the third week I was there, literally by accident, there was a editor who had come down from the Week in Review. Her name is Felicity Barringer. I owe much of my career to her. And she overheard me talking about this thing called the internet. And Were you on CompuServe then, AOL? I, I think uh, I think I was on CompuServe and AOL, frankly, back then. AOL was was was, was cooking up at that point. Email had literally just started, sure. in the, and so and she heard me over. We were talking about modems, literally when we used to have to write modem, comma, a device that transmits data <laughs> over a phone line. Literally, that that was that was the thing. Sure. And she said, "Could you write an article about why modems make that silly, uh, <clears throat> ridiculous noise?" And she thought I was a real person in the building. She, she had no idea who I was. She thought I was like maybe a college graduate, I think, or some kind of clerk had you, or Had assistant. you done any journalism in high school? No. no, no I'd, I mean, I'd run this magazine. I'd right, run the sports right. magazine, but I didn't. I hadn't done anything real. You could have been a window washer who I was could, just getting you know, a tour I had my, of the I, had a, I would always wear my tie and my blazer and always <laughs> trying to look the part. And I remember going back to Stewart and saying, I got assigned an article. And... He was like, well, you got to go back. And oh, explain. you got to do it, Andrew. No, no, no. He was like, you got to go explain to her you're in high school. You can't. <laughs> I think the language is a little more colorful than that, but I know there's a family program you're running. And somehow, I remember we went for pizza on 44th Street. And he said, okay, why don't you do it and then give it to me before you give it to Felicity. So 500 words later, of course, my 500 words, which, which you or I today would hopefully write in an afternoon or a couple hours or maybe even less, took me like a week and I showed it to my mother first. Oh, my gosh. Uh, and then I gave it to Stuart, who who I admittedly deserves a lot of credit because he had put a little hand, handiwork on top of it. And then we gave it to Felicity. She put her handiwork on top of it, and then they put it in the paper. And you, didn't now, run a, you didn't run afoul of the union. I remember it was a devout union shop, and you weren't getting paid for this, were you? 
I think in the end I got fifty dollars. Oh, but but only after the fact. What is that per word? <laughs> Ten know. cents per word. You know, <laughs> knock yourself out. Boy's got a dream. Boy's so got that's a dream. awesome. So that was like the big moment, and. There used to be a thing called the Greenies. I remember. You remember that? Yeah. This was like a, a memo with with like the usually was like the twenty not worst articles of the week, but you know problems, copy editing things, and then they highlighted a handful of articles that they really loved. And but but the statistics were bad. You didn't want to be in this thing. I mean, I remember there was a good deal of passive aggression behind that. I, I remember mean, you, the copy. The, there would be comments on articles like you know, is English really your first language? Yeah, I remember that. And. Uh, <laughs> Somehow, magically, my little article appeared on the list of the, the ones they wanted to praise for the week. Now, the problem was I didn't get a byline back then. So they had to go around and try to figure out who wrote this thing. <laughs> so this little rogue 18-year-old kid, and then they figured it out. And uh, I was supposed to go off. I was probably going to leave the Times. I think I had like a week and a half left. And I thought I'd maybe go be like a camp counselor, honestly. And then they said, you want to stay for the rest of the summer. And that's how my career began. So that was before senior year of high school? That was no, that was senior year of high school. Did you already accept I was going to Cornell in the in the fall. So then I I spent that summer though at the New York Times and I wrote some other stories. Finally got a byline at the end of the summer. It was a big deal. What was it on? Um the the the, the column that I was it was almost like a column I kept writing. It was I called them the Seinfeld questions of the computer age, like why the modems make that noise. <laughs> and when I finally got the the byline on was uh, an article about why modems, or not modems, why computers were that ridiculous color. You remember that like taupey color that oh, yeah. every computer was? Oh, yeah. yeah well, that's an actual, there's actually like a reason for that specific color because it doesn't uh, create what's called after image. So I did this whole thing all about that. Anyway, I got my byline. Um, that's actually, by the way, how I got Ross in my name. So I, I don't know if I ever told you this story. No, tell us. So my... You, you don't want to go by Andrew 8 Sorkin? No, so I'm really Andrew... So I was always Andrew... Up until that article, I was Andrew Sorkin. Maybe Andrew R. Sorkin if I was being really pretentious about it, you know? And uh, Ross is my mother's maiden name. So you can go steal my credit cards now. And <laughs> I had lunch with my grandfather about two or three days before the article was going to run. And he said, you gotta, you got to use your full name. Because we thought this was like our one shot in life to get the byline in the New York Times. Like this was going to be a one and done. This was not supposed to go on this way. So that's and then I and then that's how. So I got to understand my three this. name thing. Did happened. you buy yourself a monthly pass? You kind of chanced into this. Yeah. You became this accidental, almost Forrest Gump-like uh, uh, journalist. That Hopefully, there's a little more in that, but yeah, yeah. I don't know. Uh, no, Chance the Gardener. Let's okay. put it that way. Maybe that's that reference is too old for you. Uh, but you're kind of my age. What the heck am I saying? You right. would you just buy yourself a Metro North Pass and show up every day? Yeah. And walk from Grand Central. I'd walk from Grand Central. I'd lady. oftentimes sometimes pick up Stuart. Stuart used to uh, eat on 43rd Street at the um, what's that hotel there right next to the Algonquin, uh, Ian Schrager Hotel there. He used to have breakfast there, and so sometimes I'd meet him there, or sometimes I meet him in the lobby. So did he become a reluctant mentor? Not reluctant. I mean, there's nothing reluctant about it. He's somebody I, I like. Lived. This kid found me. It sounds like a bit of a nuisance at the at the outset. I'm and sure then you have to may, mitigate the journalism. May, maybe was it? Maybe he was reluctant. I mean, he was reluctant in the beginning. I mean, he's become somebody that I, you know, he's somebody I, I love forever, and, and I hope I hope it's I hope it's mutual. Wow. So walk me through this further. You go to Cornell that fall right. um, with a kind of epiphany or, or, or understanding or a head of steam that very few freshmen have. You didn't have to. Did you know leaving the Times, after, especially after that byline? Yeah, I was like, this is what I got to do. 
yeah, I used to say to my mother, all I got to do is get the piece of paper. I got to graduate. I got to get graduate as quickly as humanly possible because all I want to do then is be a journalist. Okay, but this wasn't a four-year gap or, or summer to summer to summer. You wanted to write while you were there. Yeah, so I started writing some articles when I was there. I got a fax machine. I think I was like one of the... <laughs> I'm okay. I was like one of the only kids who had a fax machine, which is kind of a ridiculous thing to do. And so, yeah, I, I would freelance effectively from Ithaca. I was not the I was not the Ithaca Stringer. The, the, there was there was an Ithaca Cornell Stringer uh, through the Daily Sun, Cornell Daily Sun. But I would write business stories, and then I'd come back and forth. And then over the handful of summers when I was at school, I I, ca- I continued writing for the Times. And then, really, two things happened that were. Someone again, luck upon luck upon luck in life. You know, I was a junior. I went a, abroad for part of my junior year. I was, I was part of this program at the London School of Economics, and um, I, I, they had said to me, you know, or I'd said to them, could I do some writing? And um, I thought I'd write only a handful of articles, but I ended up spending literally virtually every day. I'd go to school in the morning, and in the afternoon, I'd spend the day. With Warren Hogue, who's in the bureau chief of the New York Times in London, and uh, you know, I remember an editor once said to me, he "said Well, you're done with school at two o'clock in the afternoon, right?" And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, about two. They're like, "Well, it's only nine o'clock in New York, so you know, go to town." So I would write all these crazy business stories. Had yeah. you become a bit of a celebrity at Cornell, where it's like no. you're, you're not slumming it with some small campus? No, paper no, no, or... no. I had actually worked briefly for the Daily Sun. My fresh, I think it was my freshman year. I helped them start the website. Um, this just dates you. The idea that they didn't, they actually had a very sort of uh, bare bones website at the time and we, we, we upgraded it a little bit. But no, so I was doing that. And then when I graduated from, from Cornell, they had said, the, the Times said to me, and I thought, by the way, I didn't know I was going to go into journalism. At that point, by the way, I thought I, I might just go do something. I thought I was going to go into business or something else. I, w- it wasn't, I wasn't convinced it was always going to happen. I, I was actually a little depressed because I was trying to get a t- job with the Times in New York and couldn't. They just didn't have any spots. And then they called me back and they said, hey, would you be willing to go back to London? And I was like, and it, this is now 1999. They want me to cover M&A. The deal world is just exploding. I mean, every day, you know, it's just a crazy deal after deal. I think ExxonMobil had been had merged the year before. Uh, Vivendi's buying MGM. I mean, it was just uh, the, the biggest hostile takeover in the history of the world happened when I was over there. Vodafone bought a company called Manisman. I remember. For $183 billion. So where did you build your business chops doing this? I mean, you kind of winged it in getting it this was literally, line, but It was just... literally Traba. I just jumped into the pool. It was a little bit, I, honestly, I, when I first got there, I remember being, I was just, I, I, first of all, I was always anxious and scared because I'd never done this before. I used to read everybody else's stuff constantly, try to just understand how it was. I mean, and it, to be honest with you, it was a little bit like Mad Libs for me in the beginning. I would actually, if, if you told me to go do an earnings story, which I'd never done before, I used to go read like a hundred other earnings stories and say, okay, in the beginning they say this, then then they tell, then they compare it to the year before, then they seem to, then they go find an analyst who has a who will tell you whether it's a good idea, good thing or a bad thing, then they'll sort of broaden out the picture and tell you. I mean, it, for me it was like a little bit of a formula, and I, I over time I learned the formula, but in the beginning, it, it, I, I remember it was a struggle. It was fake a struggle. it, fake it till you make it, man. Um, yeah. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are at NPR New York City with none other than Andrew Ross Sorkin, star columnist at the New York Times. He also co-hosts uh, Squawk Box um, on weekday mornings on CNBC. Uh, I, I just, I would just love to know. Um, so, I, 
contrary to, to maybe popular belief, a lot of people out there seem to think you were an Alex P. Keaton in high school or junior high. You knew the stock tables. No. You were, you were, you know, you hung around Wall Street. You took a random walk or two. You kind of chanced into business journalism. Totally, except that I... I mean, w- you're a deal wonk right now. Now you- I'm a deal wonk, but back then I was an advertising wonk. I knew, but I, I knew more, I was, I was one of those kids who, you know, most people watch the Super Bowl for the sports, I watched for the commercials, and I could tell you every ad agency and how much they paid for each ad. Mm. And as the world, as the internet evolved or really developed at the very beginning, I was focused so much on Microsoft. You mentioned CompuServe and AOL. I was on all the bulletin boards. I knew what the advertising pricing was. And then because I was so interested in internet companies, was then interested in the investment side of it, the stock price, where things were, who was going to merge with whom. It was a go, 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 go year for the NASDAQ. I remember I was working working underwriting and selling deals at at Goldman back then, and you couldn't stop the deals. It was very much the tail wagging the dog, and and it, things were limitless and endless. And you know, Netscape AOL was brewing, right. and then AOL Time Warner was brewing. But for me, it was also always about the people, and it was always about the characters. And I think, to the extent that I hopefully like to think I bring anything to this as a journalist, I think there are a lot of people who look at the numbers and look at these big institutions and t- and tell those stories. I always was attracted to who these people were and what motivated them to do what they did and what the incentive was for them to do what they did. And I always, you know, a lot of people wanted to be, you know, Washington correspondent or cover the sports or cover the arts. I always thought, I really, I mean, it's such a cliche, but I always thought if you really did follow the money, it explained everything about life. It explained politics, it explained sports, it explained art. And so to me, if I could do that and then, and then try to understand who these people were and why they were doing what they were doing, to me, that was the story. So really, you could have been placed on the metro desk. You could right. have been, been comfortable yeah. anywhere. I, I'd like to think. Maybe not. But we'll, you never know. So by 2000, you became the Times chief M&A reporter. I mean, Fancy title. I mean, a gangbuster year based in New York, yep. a, a position you back. still hold, right? I don't know if I technically still hold that position. <laughs> There's too many hats. I don't know what I am. I think I'm, they call, I think I'm, I'm called the, the editor-at-large, columnist. I don't know. I have a handful of, of titles these days. So you would, I mean, you weren't winging the London thing. You had parlayed it into a huge plum gig by 2000. By 2000, 2001, uh, so I, when I was in London, I made it my business to try to make the New York Times competitive on, in this world of deals. With the FT and others? With the FT and with the journal. That's all I wanted to do. And I'm not saying that we got there, but I think we got damn close. And... It was sort of that experience that then got me back to New York. Um, Laura Holson had been covering the M&A beat in New York. Sure. She helped me really in so many ways learn about the business. And then I took over the role. you you got to tell me about DealBook because, uh, you know, it irony is to go back to that first non-byline story about the modem. Right. And so you were so ahead of your time. I mean, you look at Axios and the other people right now doing these newsletters. And I remember I was on the sell side back then and people were using DealBook. Like you you absolutely, you telling clients, you've got to sign up for this email, this compendium. It's in your Outlook daily. It's pretty indispensable. And it was making some of the research desks in New York a little nervous. Right. Like, are we not doing our job? How did that come up? How did you get buy-in at the time? Did you get equity in a project like this? I mean, and by the way, you know, I'm, I'm, this is a mouthful. Yeah. A lot of uh, of journalists had to resist the siren call of leaving right. old media for you know hotshot IPO bound concepts. Well, yeah, there were a lot of journalists back then, by the way, who were running off to to do all sorts of things for money. For me, so the 
the concept of DealBook came from this. I moved back to New York. I'm thinking, by the way, the job should be so much easier to do out of New York than, than London in that the New York Times is, is based in New York. And so you wouldn't, I thought to myself, it wouldn't be that hard to convince this netherworld of sources, the bankers, the lawyers, the accountants, the CEOs, the board members, to end up talking to me. Whereas in London, I didn't even have a newspaper to show. But I got to New York, and sadly, I, I, and I hate to say this, I go around uh, to a lot of these, you know, you might describe them as machers, and, uh, and I'd introduce myself and whatnot, and they'd say, Sorkin, you sound like a nice kid. I get the New York Times at home. I read the front page, sometimes the sports, and then I leave it there and I take the journal with me on the way to work mm. on the train. And I thought, geez, Louise, we got a problem. Because this is a, there's, there's a vicious circle here, which is if you can't get your stuff in front of them, there's no way that we're ever going to, we're ever going to get the big scoops, really sort of be able to make it and, and, and also demonstrate just how competitive I think we really can be. And that was sort of the genesis of, well, in a way, in a way, let's work around it. Let's go directly to them. Let's go right into their email box. And rather than just show off your own stuff, which is probably pretty self-serving. Let's make this have some real value. This is before blogs. This is the idea of linking to another publication or somewhere else was sort of verboten, crazy, um, you know, anathema inside the organization. And so the idea was, though, we were gonna we were gonna show you everything. We're gonna show you our, our story, but we'd show you the story at the Wall Street Journal and the FT, and we'd show you the sidebar from, you know, I remember when Lucent and Alcatel were trying to merge. We'd show you the the the. The articles from the, uh, I think it was the Star Ledger, the local Star, where, where Lucent was based, and then we'd go and we translate articles from Le Monde in, in Paris, so you how could actually you, how did you, so you convince, could see how what did you, what everyone was doing. And then we'd go find the SEC filing, and the, and the idea was if you could put it all in one place for people every morning, that that would have value to this community. How did that move the needle for the New York Times, which was still overwhelmingly kind of print centric, focused on A one? Were you bringing in ad revenue for them? Were they convinced so, that if I edit this, it's a good use of your expensive so, time? Sorkin? So part, well, I, it wasn't that expensive time at, the, at, at that time. Hopefully, it still isn't. I hope, I hope it's still a good deal. But um, back then, two things. One was I did say we got to make money on day one. So this was, by the way, the dot-com crash is basically upon us. And I'm saying I don't want to do this unless we're going to make money from moment one. I remember our, we, so we, so we signed up two advertisers in the beginning. Brooks Brothers, and we had a, a currency, uh, like a currency exchange that was that was another one of the advertisers, and yeah, so 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 effectively the thing paid for itself in the beginning, and then the concept was that if you could if you could get the New York Times brand and our coverage in front of this influential community of people, many of whom were already subscribing to the New York Times, but as I just said, didn't think of us as the top place they wanted to read business news, if we could try to shift that perception, that that would be the opportunity. And that's really what, you know, that's really what we ran, we went after and went after hard. And, you know, I remember in the beginning, I think they told me, I think they said, you know, we think that you could maybe get 30 or 50,000 subscribers, like max, like almost like max ever. And I think within the first year we had gotten to, I think we'd gotten to 50, maybe we got to 80,000 pretty quick. Today we're I think near four hundred thousand just on the email. Now of course we have a website and everything else, but back then, you know, we, we were just a. You look at the Deal Book brand right now and the caliber of guests that you could have at live shows here and uh, the add-ons and the bolt-ons. 
And so you almost single handed I also know Dan Bigman was involved with this. Absolutely. So Dan Dan's awesome. Dan was like there from the beginning. He was on the digital side. So hmm. back then at the New York Times. They kept him in a different building. Totally different building, totally different world. He was like on the website. Sure. And I was like on the newspaper. And so you had to that was a little bit of there was a little bit of, of politics of how do you get how do you get everybody on board? I think I had to convince the digital people first, and then we got the digital folks to agree, but we wrote like a business plan. I mean, it was a real thing. It was uh, so yeah. in the business acumen that you developed. Did you ever think about maybe carving out equity? Like, I want to get exposure to this. There has to be a tracking stock so I, of like no, I mean, New York Times Premium that reflects my you know entrepreneurship. I got a, it. All worked out. I, I don't want to get into, it, it, but it was not an equity deal. It wasn't. It was never. It was never an equity deal, like in, in the traditional sense of equity. But it, but you know what? We we did okay. Everyone did did fine. Could you know? In retrospect, would have you done a hundred times better if you had gone off on your own? Maybe. But then you wouldn't have the platform of the New York Times either. But you know, I'm gonna so, get, I'm gonna get back to it because it took the New York Times a good, you could argue, 15 years to find that digital religion. Lots right. of convulsions, and it's arguably found it right now, or it's getting there, or yeah. it's really close. It's kind of hit its groove, but you were uh, really ahead of your time. And if I remember a, a lot of my ex my short experience there is print journalists, by and large, did not want to sully their hands on the digital experience. They thought it was like for the, you know, remember Lost? It was yep. like the others on the other side it of was. the island. It was. That was like, yeah, digital was not the game. So, yes, convincing convincing people around me early on. That this that this was something worth worth taking the time to do. Also, though, it was like an add-on for me. I was saying I, I was basically volunteer. I was basically raising my hand, saying I will wake up at some you know ungodly hour and, in my pajamas and and put this together along with Dan Bigman, uh, who also woke up early. And I should shout out. Uh, I haven't seen her or talked to her in a long time, but uh, Liza Klausman. Uh, we we hired her a couple months in out of London, and she did a lot of, she did a, she did a lot of work overnight, and she was, she was spectacular. So that, those, that was the original team. And, and I, I got to ask you, I know you're going to be, uh, you're going to be bashful and self-effacing about this. You must have been getting offers from the Journal and Bloomberg and other places at this time, because you are this deal breaker. You were establishing yourself as a person who could, you know, you, you, you had the HP, the Compaq people, the AOL people, the dot-com people. You were breaking news. You were moving the needle for the New York Times, and that must have been really vexing for the Journal and and Bloomberg that always looked at the New York Times as kind of an optional business read. We had some nice conversations with those folks over, <laughs> over the years. You know, I, for me, the New York Times... I, I just, I have to know, yeah. how did they afford to keep you? There are other places, I mean, Mayor Mike could have written you a very nice check. I, I, I don't think, A, I don't think I was always motivated by money. I hope I wasn't. I hope I'm not. But I... I I had a real connection with, with the paper, um, with the with Arthur Salzberger, um, Martin Usenholtz, who was who back then, Joe Lollyveld, and then Bill Keller and Jill, and uh, I know Larry Dean, you. Glenn Cramon, and, sure. and Larry Gracia. So um, now now Ellen, so Rebecca Blumenstein. So I don't Ellen. I I think he's fabulous. I had to do that. Come on. Hey, boss, how are you? <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're talking to Andrew Ross Sorkin about his career arc. Um, you are now a star at the New York Times, the business desk. You're very synonymous with New York Times and business journalism and Wall Street coverage. And I want to fast forward you to the heady days of 2007 and then the crash of 2008. Um, you wrote this spectacular book, too Big to Fail, which was a great read. I mean, it was a page turner for me in the tradition of um, 
uh, you know, Barbarians at the Gate, uh, some of the stuff that Jim Stewart did. I want to know how you scrambled the Jets and did that. Clearly, by 2008, you had access. You had great people what, telling you what happened inside the halls of the New York Fed and the boardrooms and, you know, Jimmy Kane and Bear Stearns and all these things. I just finished a book, as you know, your wife right. was my, my agent, and I pulled my hair out over a decade, you know, 12 years writing this thing. How did you kind of... Uh, did you build some sort of, you know, partner associate model where you brought in grad students or something? How did you churn out something like that so quickly? So first of all, it takes a village. I'll get into the village in a moment. But I, I think that I didn't really actually have the access that, at least in the beginning of the book process, that, that you might imagine. When I sold the book, and by the way, my wife gets the credit. She was the one who said to me, "You got it. This is the book." I've been for a whole, for de- for a decade. I'd wanted to write a book, and we'd gone through a hundred different ideas, and I never had the one that I thought I could live with. You know, everyone says that if you're going to write a book, you have to be willing to live with these characters and these people, and the story has to that, that you're going to want to be able to live with it a year later, and two years later, and three years later, and and this happened, and you know, a lot of people were writing books about. Lehman Brothers or Bear Stearns or AIG or sort of siloed versions of the story. But to me, and this goes back to the people thing a little bit, because of the role that I had covering the world of Wall Street, I saw that there was this netherworld. There was basically 30 people that basically ran the world during that period, during that crisis, and they were all interconnected. And I thought to myself, if you could tell that story of who these people were and what was motivating them and what was incentivizing them. Now, in truth, I did not know a lot of these people early on. I knew who they were. I knew how they were connected. I knew a handful of them. And it, it, frankly, it was it was the handful early on that were actually helpful in terms of steering me in some of the right directions to the point and, and giving me enough information so that I could get to the next place, so that I could I could call somebody who didn't want to talk to me. And I could say, hey, listen, I know you don't want to talk to me. I know you have lawyers who are telling you not to talk to me. But you're in a scene in this book and you're in this room, you know, you're at John Mack's house. It's Saturday morning. It's 930 in the morning. You're in the living room on the green couch on the right hand side. And this is the chicken wrap sandwich that you're eating. When you tell somebody that and then you say, and this is what you said in the meeting, even if they don't really want to talk to you, they feel a, a bit more compelled to. And so it was sort of that experience. Uh, both in the in being able to get to talk to so many of the principals and also being able to find so many of the junior people. By the way, people always think that you know you'll hear. I don't know if you've had this experience when you were writing. You you you'll get these great quotes from the principals, the big names, the Hank Paulsons or the Ben Bernankes of the world. But those guys they meet all the time. They don't always remember what they said perfectly. But if there was a junior person at that meeting, that was probably like the most important meeting they've ever been to in their whole life. They remember it like it was yesterday. <laughs> so if you could find that junior person and get them to try to give you their playback of that meeting and then go try to play play that version back to the principals, then then the principal, oh yeah, I remember that meeting. I didn't say it like that. I said it like this. This is what I, and that's what I meant. No, no, no. Oh no, he meant it like that. And so it was a lot of this almost, because a little bit of a Rashomon situation. Sure. But that's sort of how the book, uh, you know, book got put together. I had um, a handful of people who I, I shout out to have to thank. I said it takes a village. Uh, Jim Impoco, who you remember. Yeah. Uh, one of the great editors, the New York Times, that w- went on to edit so many other great magazines. Uh, he helped edit some of the pages. Jeff Kane helped edit. Um, uh, Hugo Lindgren. Oh, for, yeah. Uh, Sure. Um, he loves you. I love him. And 
I had two two, uh, two researchers did some fact checking, and then I had the great Rick Cott, Rick Cott um, at Penguin, who, by the way, also was the editor of Barbarians at the Gate, and has probably edited more of the great books that you've read in the last three so, or four decades than you so could ever imagine. So did a lot of people do this as a favor to you, or were you able to hire their time? No, I see? would hire them. You know, uh, you know, I asked Mickey Meese as a as a favor, really. To yeah, kind no, of no, give no. My first I was uh, no, I I would I paid people. I would I would send off my chapters and say, here's a little, you know. See what you can do. Because I was running and gunning. I would write, send it, write, send it, write, send it. Just because I literally, we, so the whole had... thing was done from maybe November. But I would. it was probably unfair to everybody because I'd parse it out. Meaning, you know, maybe I'd give you three chapters to look at while somebody else saw through other three. And you wouldn't necessarily know. What well, there was a at. big race to Constantinople after 2008 for who's going to deliver the oh, there was first a, definitive right. book. And, you know, there was, House of Cards and Bill Cohen. Look, and Joe Nacera was Joe writing Nacera. a book with Bethany McLean. Uh, Charlie Gasparino had a book coming out. Roger Lowenstein was working on a book. So there was a bit of a rush. I mean, part of it was who could get the, yeah, part of it was who could get there first. And I'm not, by the way, I don't think we came out first. I think, um, I think Charlie Gasparino might have come out You first. came out biggest, I could tell you that. We, we did okay. We did okay. You know, why are so. you not willing to toot your own horn? Why do I have to kind of horse collar you and? No, no. Look, I'm very proud of it. It's one of the. It's one of the. It's it, of 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 many of the things that I've had the opportunity to do. A, it was selfishly the most interesting um, intellectual exercise. I didn't think I could even write a book. I mean that. I, I still can't believe I wrote a book. I, mean, I remember like, I've repressed the memory. Like I remember PTSD. telling my wife early on, I, we're going to have to give the money back. Like we're not going. I'm. I, and I remember they might have said that the book had to be like sixty or eighty thousand words, and I thought, this is impossible. How could anyone write this many words? It'll never happen. And you know, I don't know what it was. It was like one hundred twenty thousand words, maybe more. So did you take mini book. book leave within being a columnist? Did they understand that at this critical time you were going to step away? So I did in the for the first bit after the crisis, I worked full time at the Times, um, and then I took. A couple months in the summer, basically, from like I don't remember what it was, May, May through the summer, where I, I we're bit. talking two thousand eight, two thousand eight, because we were out. No, I'm sorry, two thousand nine, mm. right? Because because the, the crisis happened in the because it was in the fall, fall of the book. Uh, I sold the book in the fall of two thousand eight, and then we came out in October of two thousand nine. That's almost ten years ago. Wow. Yeah. You know, now seven years ago, it was summer of 2011, you became a co-anchor on CNBC Squawk Box. Um, I didn't know. I thought that you had complete capacity utilization. How in the world would you get the, the permission to do something like this? I, I, I would do Squawk Box back in the day, and I remember sometimes I'd have to be in, I don't know, Fort Lee or Englewood Cliffs at 5, 4 in the morning or something like that. I want to know what your wife thought about this ultimately. I want to know how you thought you'd accept something like this. There was some standards guru at the New York Times, and I was just an intern, but he was bald. I forget his name. He'd always trip you up on grammar and everything, but he'd get furious if I did TV and these other things. It was always a strange relationship. What are we talking about? Alan? Uh, Alan um, I'll, I don't remember. You know, we're talking about the yeah, same yeah. guy. Yeah. Um, how did you, how, you. You got so, this offer. You no, no, there. so well. Two things happened though, because I just want to back. It's up. a full time job by but, itself, host of CNBC Squawk Box. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a full time job, absolutely. But let me it just—I don't know if it's worth backing up one step or not. Please do, and you can edit this however you like. Because, and because I think this also helped. I, uh, maybe it wasn't out yet. I was going to say it was too big to fail the film out yet on I HBO. Think, yeah, because I think that sort of like also drove a lot of things. Um, 
No, so you know what happened was CNBC called, I think, in the spring of 2000. Is it 10 or 11? Do you know what it is? You, well, you, you took the offer. You started I start? in summer of 2011. Okay, so, yeah, okay, so, right, sorry. So, yeah, so CNBC called in the spring of 2011 and said, you know, would you ever want to do this? Now, you should know I had been a contributor to CNBC. So sure. I had been going on CNBC regularly on Squawk. Squawk was the show that I loved the most. I mean, I adored Likewise. Squawk from yeah. – the beginning. It was it was the thing that I always thought people woke up with. They haven't had me on forever, but I got nothing but love for the squawk. Go ahead. We'll we'll work on You'll it. have to rectify we'll, that. We'll have song. to rectify that. And they came to me and said, you know, would you want to do this? And I remember, you know, to to I remember thinking to myself, first of all, who's gonna I, I thought, how could you pass this up in many ways? That was sort of I think the who was going to let me be a host of a TV show? I'd never even read a teleprompter in my life. I mean, I didn't. Even Were know they what... asking you to leave the Times? Was that the assumption? Uh, I don't really remember how it all came to be, but I think it was. I just remember thinking, okay, because I'm one of these people who thinks, you know, I have very, I guess, wide eyes. I thought, you know, I could do this from six to nine in the morning, <laughs> and then I could go and do all the stuff that I do at the Times, and that was sort of how I thought about it. Um, and I didn't know if it was going to work or not. I didn't. First of all, I didn't know if I'd be any good on TV. It was a little bit of. A, I don't. I don't want to say it was uh, early on. It was a lark, but it was a little bit of like an experiment. It was almost like a selfish like test of my myself. Could I do this? Could Could I physically do it? And you know, it, to be all be, to be all made up and on set and mic'd up. Would at I be six in the morning across the Hudson River? Right, you had to leave the house in the Upper West Side early. at what time? Early. Well, come on. I mean, you're not just speaking for yourself. I mean, your wife must have had a say in this. Uh, do, yeah. you, do you not sleep? No, no, do no. I'm a big sleeper. Charge? You're going to think I'm crazy. I'm not a morning person. So I do a morning show and I'm not a morning person. What time do you get if to bed I, at night? If I, like when I was writing Too Big to Fail, I like to write at night. I would write till six o'clock in the morning. I'm like, a, if, if I did not have children, I'd be like a college kid. I would work all night. I'd sleep most of the morning. And then I'd go off and do stuff. That's how I'd actually love to live my life if, if I if I if I was doing something differently. But you know what? No. So what I was going to say is, the the thing about Squawk though. So what you were saying why, why like why did my wife agree to, to let me wake up? Why did up? everyone? How do you how did you do it? And again, I'm not trying to sound so breathless. Yeah. yeah. I just thought that that's a full time job. I've seen Becky and Joe Kern. Yeah. And I've seen no, Carl no. There's Quintanilla no question. It's it's years. it's a lot of it's a lot of stuff. There's no question. It's a lot of stuff. But for me, all of for me, all of the things that I'm involved in almost have this remarkable synergy to them, which is to say that, you know, at Squawk... You're using synergy at a market top, I think. Okay, f fair enough. But but think about it like this. Squawk has built this remarkable infrastructure uh, and it effectively to parade the most interesting people in the world to come have breakfast with you every morning. Yeah, I wouldn't know because they haven't had me on in nine years. But continue, continue. But so you're having this breakfast with these amazing people. It's a forcing mechanism for me to learn about a lot of stuff, right? So I, there's sort of an education component to it. So, And then everything I learn on that show, by the way, then I think gets infused into probably everything else I do, which is to say whether I'm writing something or working on some other project. And then I would say everything that I'm writing in the paper or doing something on DealBook ends up infusing 
the kind of questions and things that I'm talking about the next day on the show. So did this infuse your marriage? And I mean, you became a parent of, of many we got, children. We have, we have three children now. Two, I don't two know. twins. And I mean, you, one baby you can't girl. really delegate. There's only so much of you. You can't delegate this to a group of people like you did with your book. I mean, this is where I wonder if it's kind of like the peanut butter memo. Are you spreading yourself thin? But you're seven years into this experience, and you're chugging ahead and doing Showtime. You know, we're doing okay. It's it's. It's worked out so far. Is it? Is it? Look, there's some days where I think it's it's you know you you feel you can feel it. It's not. I don't want to say it's easy. Um, some days it works better than other days, but I would say overall it's it's worked out. Andrew Ross Sorkin, in the five minutes or so we have left, I'd like you to close this out. Tell yeah. me about. I mean, the Times has been exceedingly resurgent. You've you've seen the subscription numbers. They're gangbusters, and I was one of the skeptics out there that thought, especially when Rupert Murdoch bought the Wall Street Journal and set his sights on New York. I mean, here's a billionaire who could really outspend the Salzburgers, and it, it doesn't make sense to be a pure play newspaper company. And I'm mixing metaphors, but they threaded the needle. They've convinced people to pay, some of them dearly, for digital access to the New York Times. And it has truly moved the needle. Going back to what you tried to do in 2001 with DealBook, um, they finally espoused this kind of religion. I think part of it is the religion. And I give them an enormous amount of credit for really being able to hang on, frankly, to this, this period. You know, there are a lot of news organizations over that period that instead of continuing to invest in the newsroom, basically just slashed and burned the place and ultimately cut cut, cut off the quality that I think you today you need, I know, frankly. you look at Knight Ritter, McClatchy, look at Gannett, the but it's all, it's all adventure. But, but, right, but you look at all of that, and, and one of the reasons that I think that to the extent that they're struggling and are going to struggle to get people to pay is because they don't have the quality that they used to have. And I think it's the it's, ultimately it's the quality that people are willing to pay for. But... I also give an enormous amount of credit, frankly, to the likes of Netflix and Spotify and a whole host of companies and sites that turned people on to being willing to pay for a subscription. I haven't seen people pay for journalistic content as much as they're willing to pay for, say, Spotify or Apple Music or Netflix, millennials especially. I completely agree with you. But I think the reason that we were at this sort of turning point um, and I think it is a, a turning point in, in all of this for, for journalism writ large is I think that people understand and have become more educated about even being able to pay and being willing to pay. And, and also, by the way, we've made it easier to pay. You can pay with Apple Pay. Uh, you know, Amazon, you can use your Amazon Prime account to buy the Washington Post. So a lot of it is just actually just the physicality of making, of literally making some of these things easier. I think that, I honestly think that's a huge component of what's happened and also then being much more aggressive about having what is a permeable wall and, and, and trying to figure out really from a, from a numbers perspective, how many you really can show with that before, before people will pay and how do you market to them aggressively? And if anything, it seems like there's a kind of a, a, a happy rivalry now, more so between the New York Times and the Washington Post, which after all is backstopped by Jeff Bezos, who's the richest man in the world. He's worth $133 billion. If they don't care about his profit at Amazon, I doubt they're going to nickel and dime him on the, the Post. Exactly. Um, and look, it's very hard to... It's, uh, it's hard to compete against people who don't care about profits. But I, to their credit, by the way, my understanding is that they're actually now turning a profit. So I, I think that they're doing pretty well. Great times. You, yeah. you, you know what? I'm just going to call you an egg or a salmon because you get poached left and right, man. It's unbelievable. But you stay where you are. God bless you. Yeah. Thank you, sir. It's so much fun to see you. Andrew Ross Orkin, 
star columnist at the New York Times, co-host of CNBC's Squawk Box, uh, co-creator, co-producer, what is it, of Billions on Showtime? Co-creator. Do you tap dance? Do you play the piano? I run the fan club. Oh, you are the man. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Full disclosure, special thanks to NPR New York City. Uh, you can love us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com, Twitter at FullDRadio, Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. We are all the news that's fit to compress to MP3. I'm Robin Farzad, back with you next week. I'm back.